Zane Lowe, Apple Music. Welcome to the Zane Lowe podcast interview series. I'm Hanuman, and today, Zane is going to be running back his conversation with the one and only U2. Bono and the Edge come full circle. Zane interviewing both of these artists in the desert 30 years, 40 years after the seminal Joshua Tree work came out as we head into the release of Songs of Surrender, a project that finds the band looking forward and backwards at the same time, taking these classics, these absolute no-joke classics, reinterpreting them, and breathing new life into tracks that you already love. This is Zane Lowe, the podcast interview series. This is the U2 interview. The wide open road. This is something that's inspired artists, musicians, filmmakers, for as long as art has been created. This desire for emptiness, to feel small. As big as U2 have become, this is a band who have been searching for uncharted territory ever since they emerged from Dublin in the late 1970s. Their journey is unprecedented. I can't think of a corner of the globe that they haven't visited or tried to touch in a meaningful way. But one environment, one very vast, large, expansive experience keeps drawing you two back. The desert. This, out of anywhere in the world, is where Bono and the Edge asked us to meet and talk about the 40 songs of surrender, their musical legacy, recreated, a rare moment of reflection for a band that fight and thrash their way forward. I have so many questions for these two, and luckily, no distractions. To look at that, woo! I love the desert. Yeah. I love it out here. Well, it's an essential part of your story. Yeah, but it's the purity of it. That's the thing, it's a pure, pure space, the desert, because there's nothing here. Yeah, you feel like the smallest you'll ever feel in a place like this. You, know, you have to have a certain sense of self to be able to sit in the desert and mm. enjoy that experience, I mm. think, for long periods of time. Yep. Shall we have a seat? You said something which was off the record, which I always like to start with on the record, okay. which was um, you said in all of the years you've been traveling and, and dancing through the desert and having photos taken and doing things that you've never conducted a conversation per se in this environment. Even though we do look at you 2 as being one of those bands that brought the desert and that sense mm. of wide open space to us as fans that you never stopped here and had a conversation. We, we have many conversations with each other, and, but we've never recorded them. Yeah. And uh, other than as songs. Mm. So when you, you know, put this together for us, we were, we were like, wow, that's never happened before. We've never done this before. So mm. it's a magic landscape. And, you know, we came to America to look for America at a time when America was looking for itself. Mm. You know, America was trying to discover who it was in the 80s again. It got a bit lost. And so it was an amazing time to arrive in, in America. And for us, a, a lot of our versions of America were from music, but also from books. City Lights bookstore in San Francisco, reading the plays of Sam Shepard, Patti Smith. Yeah. Poems of Allen Ginsberg mm. brought us to the, I mean, the Joshua Tree. I don't think his America was really, and Howl. These were important tracts for us. And also Vim Vendors. That's right. Oh, yeah. Remember Paris, Texas? That was a huge movie. That, to see America through a European eye like that was, was important for us. Well, because outside of America, we'd always been marketed this idea of the bright, shiny America, you come here, it's where the money gets made and the products get sold. And I think what people like Wim Vendors did and, and ultimately you tapped into was that there's a beautiful, wonderful, untapped weirdness in mm. between all of that. Yeah. That should be explored and should be embraced because um, it's the most magnificent landscape being out here and just looking But around. you're right on the, this danger. It's not just a meditative, kind of landscape. You feel the peoples who fought and died here, you just do. You do. And they're over there, I mean, this is, there's a ghost town over there. And I was doing a little research into it out of curiosity, and that's the most, at one point was the most lawless town in Nevada. If you can imagine how lawless Nevada was in the 1800s and create a hierarchy and put that at the top, we're in some lawless shit right now. <laughs> a lot of those uh, bandits were Irish. 
Jesse James, the, the Hole in the Wall gang, Billy the Kid, mm. but island people, mm. yeah. peripathetic, travelers, pilgrims, and here we are, still believing that at, you know, to misquote Paul Ricoeur or whoever it was, you know, at the far end of experience, mm. in the right company, with some wisdom, you can recover your innocence. I love that line. Yeah, I love that line. line. It's a beautiful line because it sums up really of the journey that you've been on, which has led to this collection of songs that have been beautifully, how do I put this? I don't want to say reimagined. It's too clinical an artistic term. I think you have reconnected with them mm -hmm. and actually listened to them, maybe, oh, for the first good. time since you made them. Our songs are the boss, and they were through this whole project. Yeah. They told us what to do. Yeah, I mean, we all make songs and make art and we move on. That's the yeah, point of the artist. Yeah, people say right? your songs are like are your children. Wrong. Your songs are like your, your parents. They tell you what to do, yeah. how to dress, in the, you know, how to turn up for work, you know, in the video, whatever. Yeah. They do boss you about the songs. But after a while, if you're successful in, as a songwriter, songs become, they, they're owned by other people, not you. And in, with this um, collection, we, we were sort of trying to listen to them again. Yeah. And, and, and trying to think, well, first of all, will they hold up? Will they stand up to being broken down outside of the firepower of a rock and roll band like you too. The irony is that the songs are sitting there, if they actually do have some kind of personality construct, are sitting there laughing that you're even asking that question because they're asking the same questions of you. Are you Absolutely. going to stand up going through these songs and what will, what will you come out the other end of this experience feeling like? Oh, that's, that's a much more complicated. Right. I, I mean, the answer to that one, I don't know even. Um, yeah, because uh, the, the songs, if they're any good, they never end, but rock, rock and roll bands, they do. Yeah, well, that's why you call it Songs of Surrender, right? Not just because it's a beautiful title and it ties beautifully into the book and the experience, but you know what Songs of Surrender, when you break it down to initials, is, right? Mm -hmm. Save our ship. Yeah. Save our souls. Yeah. yeah. It was the right title, SOS, because obviously of what we've gone through with the Nouvelle Coronavirus and all that lurgy, that mm. evil little lurgy. And then just the sense of trouble, foreboding, Ukraine, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And and it looked good in a t-shirt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think about these songs and I think about what it took to go back and, and, and experience them again. And one of the things I loved as soon as I started listening was that you realize that there was journey within these songs to go and travel, that they weren't complete some of them, that there were new thoughts, new ways. I think of a song like Bad, when instead of saying, if you, you begin by saying, if I. And I love that little twist. Some songs, I almost trembled to sing them. And making that, that this song Bad, which is about, you know, my friend, um, Gokpan Stellini, who nearly lost his life a couple of ways. As a, as a child in a bombing in, in, um, in a terrorist bomb attack in, in our city, mm. then later to heroin. And, and then to ask the question, well, can I sing that? Because I must be an addict too. I'm not quite sure of what is my drug of choice, but I, I have things clearly I need to let go of. And can I sing it? And I, changed, I just rewrote it in the first person. And it, it, was, it was really hard. To, and really easy to sing at the same time. Um, yeah. Talked about Bad being one of those songs and how Brian Eno really pushed it through even though you didn't feel it was complete. Yeah, Brian Eno, you know, of, of Stop Making Sense fame. I mean, I, I'm, you know, David Byrne and he, yeah. you know, you can, you can hear Brian in the background, you know, with a, with a line like Stop Making Sense. And your lyrics are as naive as mine were yeah. at that point. There's something beautiful about leaving them as naive. That's what, at least, that's what Brian Eno used to say to me, and the band Edge would 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 support that. I, I found it excruciating later in life to go back, and I was really there were landscapes, but kind of emotional landscapes. I was sketching, right? Oh, pencil drawings, really. You know, not really. You know, I couldn't stand over them and go, "That's a great lyric," and and Edge would say great. The moment you can stand over and say it's a great lyric, you're just showing off. You're not opening, you're not being, 
you know, revealing. Uh, I'd like a bit of showing off if that was possible, though, yeah. uh, going forward. The um, lyrics are not distinct, you see, from the music. It's how the, the words collide melodically, sonically, and how, how it all comes together. So you can't really look at a lyric in isolation and um, judge it in that sense. So, so it's about, to me, it's all about emotional impact. And sure. if something's true, and it communicates emotion, which has obviously got content, or else you wouldn't find it emotional. I, I don't doubt it. I mean, you came from a hip-hop kind of background where, you know, rhythm and meter and rhyme and, and cleverness did not get in the way mm -hmm. of anger or rage or joy or mm -hmm. silliness. But in our early music, what made you two special, I hope, was that at least it was unique territory. Yeah, but I didn't know who was communicating better sometimes. Like I would listen to you, but then sometimes I would get more anger out of your playing than I got out of your words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there were times when I would feel more emotional listening to Larry and Adam connect yeah, than I would yeah. out of either of you two. Yeah. And so I feel like what makes you so unique as a band is the fact that each of you is striving to communicate very personally through your, your craft. And somehow when you get it right, it becomes this much greater thing. And also with the counterbalance for each other, you know, if you've got a really heartfelt lyric, the band have to counterbalance that with something rough and seemingly kind of aloof to the emotion of the lyric and the melody. So, you know, the same with Bonhoeff. If he's doing something incredibly aggressive and poignant, you know, the, the band have to take a different stance to set mm -hmm. that up. So it's, you know, it's about the interbalance between everything. There's this version of, on our first single, U2-3, we'd Out of Control, yeah. song called Boy Girl, and then this song called Stories for Boys, which made it onto um, uh, the Boy album. And I guess it's a teenage fantasy kind of, you know, Stories for Boys, but it's not sketched out. And then for this collection, not only did we sketch it out, Edge sang it. I love that. And it's quite unsettled. And stories for boys has a whole other resonance. Yeah. Mm. Well, we were writing it now about ourselves as we were boys back in 1979 when we first started that song. From the safety of this amount of distance of time and experience, you can actually look at who we were and finish out that that lyric, which we could never have written at the time. This is the maddest thing about this whole Songs of Surrender experience for me as a lifelong fan of your band is that I've watched you thrash and rail against reflection for most of my life. It's true. You are a band that refuses to stand still to the point where you'll actually put yourselves through all kinds of hell just to get to the other side. And everyone's like, no, stay here for five more minutes. You built it, it's great. And you're already halfway down the road to some other really tough challenge. And as a famous, as a great man, I should say, and a famous man technically, once said, nostalgia is a thing of the past. Mm -hmm. Here we find ourselves with 40 songs reflecting on the past. And so how did you find yourself at this place where Edge, the thrash quietened enough for you to feel like you could go home and relive your life in the very creative artistic sense? I think it was a lot of opportunism because of the lockdown. We suddenly, we had the space and time to to just make music without there being any kind of pressure or any expectation. And this idea had been knocking around for a while to, to try some more of our songs in a stripped down way. And we had done, you know, over the years, in our show, we'd take a song like Every Breaking Wave, we'd bring it down to piano or Staring at the Sun, bring it down to acoustic guitar and voice. But you're right, it was the untapped area fans have been waiting for the longest time. Yeah, so what is this, it gonna be like? This was like, this was a golden opportunity to to see what it would, where it would take us. But also the joy of it was there was no necessity to put it out if we didn't like it. We could just do it and see how it worked. So it was, um, we could really just enjoy the process. It was really amazing fun. It's both a vanity project and a grudge match. The grudge match is we were trying to prove, or else maybe obfuscate, was if our songs could stand up with, 
you know, the best songs, the, our favorite songs. And so that was it. We wanted to see, it was some trepidation, you know, will this, will they stand up? And then the, uh, the Vanity Project, it's kind of the same, which is you, you, you think, well, you've said for years, you never finished the lyrics. You said for years, yeah. you know, that your, your voice, you know, by the way, when I used to say I sang like a girl and people get upset, don't say that. <laughs> What's wrong like, with singing like I'm a girl? Like, That's awesome. Yeah. I, your dream is to sing like a girl. Al <laughs> Green, you know, the, yeah. the falsetto, the yeah. male in falsetto is, is most masculine in, in a way. You know, to be that feminine, that, whatever, and Joey Ramone, yeah. you know, he had that beautiful, almost Dusty Springfield thing about him. And my voice had gotten to this place where I didn't have to be shouting or screaming punk rock singer. And I thought, well, I'm going to sing these songs. Mm -hmm. And if we really get there, I know they'll sing me. What was the hardest one for you? Bad was the hardest one, uh, for sure, for the reasons we just s spoke about. I made With or Without You um, a single conversation, just, and that's, and I reveal this trick that I did on All I Want Is You, where I sing from the point of view of the muse. Yeah. So you say you want a diamond on a ring of gold. As you hear it, as a U2 fan, you think that's Bono singing to his wife. And when you realize, no, that's, that's his wife singing to him, saying, I don't need this. Mm. And so it was nice to be able to, you know, to really declare that. Uh, and to go to the text and the melody and treat it with some respect. You, got, you know, we share our songwriting and I knew too. And the reason we do that is because, well, Larry and Adam make those songs valuable, so there's an economic aspect. The other reason is because through improvisation, that's how Larry and Adam normally contribute to the, the songs. But it's also how bands stay together, by the way. And if anyone's watching oh, yeah. this, the truth <laughs> yeah. is, the truth is, if anybody Hopeful. splits things evenly, you give yourself four x the likelihood of staying together than you do any other time. That's correct. And so that it was also good advice um, from our, our manager, uh, Paul McGuinness, at the time. But the only thing of it is that, and this is the vanity bit. You know, Edge and I more and more revered the song. You know, I used to be saying, well, what did you do with your life? I'm in a band. Yeah. You know, what you do with your life? I'm an activist. What you do with your life? You know, I'm a singer. You know, but now I would say, I'm a songwriter. Mm -hmm. I'm a performer, but I'm a songwriter first. The text is everything. The melodies are everything. And are, there's a sort of, there are great songwriting couples, uh, duos, um, you know, duets, duels. And this is, I've been working with Edge since I, since I was 16. And we've been writing songs together and he's the musical genius. He comes with the, the magic and I helped shape it. And I try to put into words what's in the music, then I come to him also with music, that's why it's so often not as, as genius, but he makes it so. But that's why, and we've spoken a lot over the course of my life, and, I, and, and one thread always you know, rides through the new recordings at least, which is that you know, you've got to go really deep and at times into really hard places to come out with the good stuff. And I think part of that is because you set the, set the bar so high for each other, all of you. Mm. you know, when I hear a guitar line, and I imagine what it must be like to try to match that, or elevate it, mm. I think that bar is so high. When I hear some of the words that Bono writes for these songs, and I think what you might have to do to bring them an emotional resonance melodically, the bar is so high. But we're also pushing each other into those guitar lines and into those lyrics. So occasionally Edge will you know, come up with a great lyric. He will say, I'd like, can we write a song called I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For? That was your idea? Love that. And you know, and occasionally I will come up with the guitar part. It's you're throwing stuff around here, and it's it's beautiful. It's it's um, but also it's, it's uh, magic. If if you're lucky enough to be in in the position that we're in, where we have some songs that are revered, 
what else would you want to do with your life? Yeah. What else would you want to do with your day yeah. than yeah. search for more? Get another one. You well, know, but, but, but this is where it gets interesting for me from your process point of view. There's a great moment in your book in Surrender where you talk about waking up at, at, at four o'clock in the morning and you, you basically acknowledge that the edge is at this point either half or fully asleep while he's continuing to play the guitar line. Which by the way, anybody who's a true creative has done this. I've been making beats in my bedroom, nowhere near the edge, but still falling asleep in my thing, right? You don't ever want to let it go. Right. And so there's a part of this process which is, which is instinctual, but there's also part of it that's coercive. And I wonder what the balance is between choice and the spiritual coercion of knowing that something's there, you just got to stick around long enough to find it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, you got the right word there. I think, for me, it's always about there is something that you know is there and you just have to keep trying to unearth it, to reel it in, to get so it in. So tells me you're the kind of person that will do that as long as it takes. Well, the yeah. incident you're referring to was in London and I had the misfortune of, of having the room underneath Edge. And and all I heard was the same as the, it was the guitar arpeggio from Song for Someone. And it went on for an hour before I went to sleep. And this is like, I, we, we got home late. <laughs> so it was like 2 a.m. I went to bed. And I woke up and it, it was still, I was, an hour later he was still doing it. I woke up two hours. It was still the same thing. And then I thought, see, the edge does actually play in his sleep. It's not the same but thing. That's, but see, this is the point the between choice and coercion. Ah. on the album. You right. see, that's the So difference. what are you searching for after four hours, 14 hours, 40 well, hours? Part of it was I w would have been recording each idea. So I'm like, I'm laying them down because I, I work a lot alone. So I've got a, a microphone and a laptop yeah. in my bedroom on the road. So I would have been recording them. But then I, I think what probably happened, I had something that was almost it. And that's the worst Terrifying. of all situations. Because if it's almost it, you can kind of give it a lot of respect, which it doesn't deserve. And then in the end, you've got to find what actually is it. So it's, it can be a process of just give it a go. That's not, that's not it. And there was no incredible edibles involved. Nothing, no. <laughs> there was no like tequila. No. Uh, you weren't having personal shots or anything like that. I just knew, and we were in the studio the next day with Red's Flood. coming from you in it though, trying to stow him under the bus for that behavior. <laughs> Boy, you, there's always room under the bus with you, isn't there? For yeah. someone else to join. Get ready. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great, great place to be. So what was the song for you on SOS that, that you felt from a, from a songwriting point of view, you were most looking forward to revisiting because you felt like there was more life in it. Well, I first started out looking at some obscure songs because I thought that would be a fun part of the process. So I looked at Dirty Day mm. and If God Will Send Us Angels. Oh, yes. God, I hadn't listened to that song in that context before and it really came alive. You know, me. the thing is, it's, it's with God Will Send Us Angels, I realized that we'd not really fully underscored the melody right we'd we'd left it very abstract and the melody was much better than the song would suggest so i went okay this melody deserves proper underscore so mm -hmm. i changed the chords changed a lot of the stuff same melody same lyrics but it's a better song now not the same lyrics Oh, that's right. We changed the lyrics. So the thing, it, 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 with the bummed out Christmas tune of all Christmas tunes, yeah. you know, Jesus, sister's eyes are a blister, the high street never looked so low, you know. But it's, it's very, it's a very dystopian picture of Christmas. And I was thinking, man, it's just such a slash your wrist situation. And, and I just changed two lines and it, it became a gospel song. Mm. So if, and I think the last, course if I remember it is if God will send send us angels mm. we could we sure could use them here right now um, and if and God, if God can't, can't send his angels maybe come himself, himself right now maybe as lovely as this being out in the wide open space there is a reason also why we're in Nevada yeah and there's a destination I'm dying to get to and to do that we got to get in the tour bus. Road okay. trip? Yeah when's okay. the last time you guys were in a tour bus? Let's do Road it. Road trip. It's been a while. It's been a while. Great memories of these things. Yeah, it's a beauty. After you. I prefer the Boeing business jet myself. <laughs> <laughs> wow, look at this place. Yeah. This is the second one of these I've been in um, that, that's from this era. I'm pretty sure the one at Shangri-La, which is 
Bob Dylan's old yeah. tour bus. Similar. It's similar. We've recorded in that bus. Yeah. When we were outside, we were talking a little bit about destination. I know you just went home and you had a really good hang at home and you did something with the great Dave Letterman. And, yes. And I can imagine that was really healing in a lot of ways to go back and be a part of the community and go to the pubs that, you know, ultimately inspired you at that point. And I was thinking about what that must have felt like. And then the word faith came to mind. And it's something that has been a propulsive force in your lives and in your music. And to me, it's almost gone in three stages. And you'll, you'll have better descriptions than I do, but it's almost like the first one you're born into, so it's literal. It's like, what are we gonna do with Shalom? What are we gonna do here as servants of the message? Mm -hmm. Then it becomes a spiritual exercise because you commit to the music, to the performance, and you create a space to connect, and it feels very holistic. And then you discover the practical use of faith, which was to go out there and put, make things better, actually work on the process to making the world a better place. Does that make sense to you, the idea of it, the through line being faith, but you've had different ways of using it? Yeah, well, for any songwriter, for any musician who improvises, faith is at the heart of what you do because you jump from one note to another without knowing yeah. what that next note is. Yeah. That is... Yeah, by its very nature. The faith is required for songwriting. Ask any jazz artist, any, uh, you know, people, you just, you jumping off and, and hoping you land yeah. on a particular chord or, or, or place. Yeah. And then I suppose, I mean, I think the scriptures say faith is the assurance of things hoped for but not seen. So when you're a kid and you don't have anything at all to offer the world, at least it feels like that. And you're at a place in your life and, and in your country's life where there doesn't look like there's going to be a lot out there. You need faith. And we found it in each other. Um, we found it in music. We had a certain religiosity is the truth. Even though, you know, Ireland is dividing along sectarian lines. We're having like, a, it's, a, it's nearly a civil war. Mm. So we reject formal religion, but we find our own way. Um, and music's, you know, the language of the spirit anyway. Yeah. But that's where we connect with our music. And that's at the heart of who we are is faith. Yeah. And the idea then that the world is more malleable than you think that it's not stuck in stone. It, you can kick it, you can caress it, you can kiss it, you can push it, you can, you know, shape it. But as a band, what happened was once you committed to this journey, this ride, and you, be, you began this whole experience um, of carrying your faith with you, but ultimately searching for uncharted territory, for un, unattained experiences, the whole thing just became this, it becomes this wild circus of the unknown every single day. And if you do that with purpose, which you two mm. always have, by continuing to do the work you were worried you couldn't do when you wanted to leave the band, mm. when you did every night on stage, Joshua Tree Tour and beyond, every time that you stood in front of a world leader and tried to change something as a band or as an individual, you were doing the work you set out to do. You become agents for change. And I wonder, I've never asked you this, how that has felt at times, just as four people, four friends, loyal to each other, that ultimately realized by doing this work, People expect more of it and more of it and more of it, and it never seems to end. I think that's why it was mm. so important for us to make the album Like Young Baby and the tour that followed Zoo TV because we started to become caricatures on that basis. Like the whole, the, 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 the Joshua Tree period had way over exaggerated this sense of earnestness and responsibility. And we just had to own up and say, actually, we're not the Messiah. Just we're very, very silly. Boys. You know, we're mm. we're we're not those characters. You know, we we absolutely set out to offer ourselves to serve in some shape or form in 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 U two as a band and through our music. But um, we were also not taking ourselves nearly as seriously as people thought we were, and we we're able to laugh at ourselves and mm. uh, Act On Baby was that antidote for us as much as for, uh, mm. you know, music fans to that overly 
sanctimonious, um, pious and, and earnest sort of image that had grown up around us. We needed to flesh out, you know, the truth about who we were and give ourselves the freedom then to be in both. Because that was our, the thing we loved about Bob Marley. Like he was able to, without any issues, like blend the spiritual into the political, you know. Into the very personal. sexual. Mm -hmm. There was no like, to him, these weren't different baskets. These were all part of who he was. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. And the pop song, you shouldn't stray too far from the pop song. Great rock and roll always has that, you know. Kurt Cobain describes Smells Like Teen Spirit as a pop song. Those songs were just brutally aggressive nursery rhymes written from within in a very dysfunctional and painful place. But the melodies, you can hum them to a child at night. Yeah, and the guitar solos playing the melody too. That's a key for the... Almost Neil Young-esque. I mean, do, 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 do. He's literally just playing the verse again. And his favorite song is in my life, the Beatles. Mm. So, you know, don't bore us, get us to the chorus. Yeah. The punk thought, this is songwriting discipline. This, they had real discipline. I mean, the band and the way they approach the arrangements. Yeah. But the songwriting itself. And so for us, with you 2 whenever we get too far from don't bore us, get us to the chorus, mm. from progressive rock, the, the lurgy, uh, arrives into our life. I'm always get very nervous because, you know, you two was always that thing. At least you knew where you were. I don't know though. You know, that's what I love about songs of surrender because there's moments where these songs unveil themselves, and I'm like, this is a strange arrangement. There's not a lot like bad's a strange arrangement. Like got, end of the world doesn't have a chorus. It mm, doesn't. That's true. It doesn't. You're it, the chorus. Yeah, yeah. Yes. But a You're lot the of hook. a lot of our songs are unusual arrangements. They're not classic, sort of. Verse, chorus, post-chorus. That is a very big chorus, though. It's just not a traditional one. Well, that's the thing. It's a very big melody. I would, I would say the progressive aspect is not adhering to the classic formats, and I, I think, I think that gonna. is something you always need to be open. You're abstract to. painters, I think, in a lot of ways. Even though you think you're right. Well, we love innovative, uh, experimental work. With working with, with Brian Eno and Daniel Lennon, that's why. But we brought to it is what I'm saying is when we bring that discipline, it's that's when music gets made. And what we, we felt a little estranged from a kind of indie mentality that seemed to not have to own up to its ambition. I just love when music is once is kind of jumping out of its skin, but to find the song that matches the voice or the band, mm-hmm. that's the thing. And that's what I loved about Nirvana. That's what I loved about the Joshua Tree was it just sounded like you actually for once in pure balance and harmony and happy and the album reflected this glorious time. What I got from Zoo TV was, um, or the album Mark Tung Baby into the Zoo TV tour was something altogether different. You were railing, so there was, there was a real fight to, to break free and you, as you said, at a time when ambition was bad in music, don't embrace brands, let alone go and build an entire tour around imaginary brands and, and don't poke fun at it and don't play stadiums. God, whatever you do, don't play stadiums. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Do not do that. And then you are like, you know, the fly. Oh, yeah. Out. Like, I loved that about, that was for me, you were the only band. If you had taken up to Baby and tried to perform it in an environment like Joshua Tree, it would never have worked. It had to come alive and, but and don't be you as think, big as it was. Don't yeah, you yeah. think Kurt Cobain, he was already starting to wear eye makeup and silver shirts. Oh, for sure. He, was, he was blowing as... through all that bullshit, yeah. you know, of authenticity. I, I rail against bogus authenticity. Yeah. Do you remember, you, you will remember familiar things around the 90s mm-hmm. when we were working on Acting Baby and mm-hmm. Zeropa and stuff. People say, but drum machines, they're false. You know, we're authentic. Are you talking about, so there goes electronic music. There goes black music. Mm. There goes hip hop. Mm-hmm. Like, fuck you. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's, you know, and what I loved, it was a great moment in the 80s um, when there was a certain kind of palette that was acceptable to paint cool things within rock and roll. It was, it was a certain, you know, there's the Harley Davidson. Actually, this would fit into it. This is a stream, there's this, this landscape. We may have been part of it and arrives Prince on a Honda, purple, stacked heels. I mean, there's nothing about his style or fashion 
that fit in. He blew it out. He just brought it back to him. The thing he about rock and roll out. is it got co-opted really quickly. It got easily manageable and it got easily commercialized and co-opted into a framework that worked for, for radio, for outlets, for marketing, for branding, right? Every anytime an underground resistance, which is what house music was, disco was, yes. hip hop was, yes. it was fighting back. It always got like, well, until you're ready to play by our rules, we're going to disregard this as not being authentic or real or marketable or useful. And someone like Prince was so valuable beyond his ultimate genius and ability was because he was like, I'll do it all better than all of you. Right. In an undeniable way. So you can't deny me. And the songs. Undeniable. And the songs were great. Undeniable. For a period. But back to Act of Baby period, because yeah. you're right that there was at that moment, there was this idea that anything that was commercial was, was, had no authenticity. That to be pure, to, to, to have your work be taken seriously, you had to be pure and anti-commercial. Yeah. Which, if you think about it, if you're trying to make out an album, there's a ridiculous position to take. Like, if you make an album, you want people to hear what you've done. Yeah. Which means that you have to have your records in the stores and lots of people buy them. So yeah. you want to promote your record. Do the things that every band has always done. The problem is we let the wolf in, though. That's why. Music had let the wolf in the door, which was big business. And we'd started to collaborate with big business in a big way. And fans didn't know how to feel about it. Well, there's yet. a difference. Mm. There's a difference between allowing your music to be tainted right. by a bad use, a bad association, where you're cheapening what you're doing. But we, we never had any problem never. with ambition, yeah. nor did any of the bands that we looked up to. And not at the hip hop world. But you never did a commercial edge. We and never that's did. that's the difference. Right. That's why I think you were able Couldn't to go in. <laughs> <laughs> but that's why you were able to go in there and be playful with it was because people couldn't sit there and trace it back to a, to a legitimate trade. Yeah. You can go and play with the imagery of big commercial branding and marketing. Fucking twist it upside down and blow it up every night in the Pontiac Silverdome. Because mm -hmm. no one can trace it back and go, yeah, but they're bullshit because they did a Coke deal six years ago and it all goes back to that. You never did until the bipod ad. Our manager, McGinnis, used to say to us, it'd be, you know, an artist does need to um, think about, you know, the walls that their art is going to be hung on and perhaps mm. who owns the gallery because if you don't like them, you might not want your art hanging in the gallery. So he didn't let us off. So you two had to think, we were a band of four, but with Paul, we were a corporation of five. He was so important. And so the corporation word was a pejorative in the 80s. But of course, hip hop came along and said, hold on a second. Yeah. And we think about what we're doing. We are, we are our own industry. You're coming out of Compton, mm. if you're Dre or Kendrick, mm. It's not a sellout to set up your stall and to be selling your wares. So there was a beautiful honesty that came from hip hop. We saw a little bit of it with, with the Oasis when mm. they came through in, in the UK. We were like, oh, wow. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. You're, you are a freak of nature, the four of you. Not only have you stayed together, but you've maintained a friendship and a loyalty that more often than not becomes a corporation and really just becomes a board meeting. You don't get that unless the friendship is real. The love mm. is still there. Oasis can't say the same right now, for the most part. But it's much more hard for them because they're brothers. Correct. The thing about your friends is you get to choose them. Choose right? a family. You don't choose your family. And I think uh, our band luckily found each other as friends first. Yeah. And then, lo and behold, we found out that we actually weren't, weren't bad as, as songwriters and performers. But also the way we're designed, we're not in competition. So it's not like Lennon and McCartney where there's two guys who, you know, the rivalry probably made them better. Yeah. But they're also basically doing the same thing, singers and songwriters. You know, I, I do a lot of music composition, but I need Bono to, to finish the song. So we complement each other. We don't, we, we don't ever cancel each other out. It's additive. So we shine brighter working together than we ever could on our own. And I think that's why the band is still together, as much as the friendships are sort of the same, meaning the friendships are real and they work. There's been a lot of departure in recent years, you know? Paul 
no longer managing the band, that's change. Kids grow up and leave home, that's change. People pass away, that's mm. awful change, but change nonetheless. And inevitably you come back to the only thing that's stable. If you're lucky, that's a marriage or a relationship or a close friendship. You're extra lucky, but the band as well. But you regroup and you figure out what is really important here and where are we going? And then you've got a decision to make. You know, do we continue to relive our lives through these songs? And, or is there a fight, thrash, something to kick against still? That's it. Mm. That's, the only one I, that's the only band I want to be in. Have to be in that one. When I tone down right. or I'm worn down, I don't feel we make the, the music the way we should. We need all four people yeah. at full tilt. Yeah. And that's the way it works. And that's the way our live show works. But in the studio, it can get a little um, polite. See, the problem is you're not comparing um, a binary thing, like something that's really terrible and something that's really good. Often you're trying to compare something that's almost great and something that is great. And, yes. you know, that's the problem, yes. settling. The enemy of great is not crap. The enemy of great is almost great. Mm. Because you settle, you go, good oh, enough. Good enough, it's... And well, some time, people, well, time oh, starts to settle in, right? All of a sudden people around you go, yeah, but, and then you go, well, maybe time oh, is a factor. Well, maybe these shows we booked are a part of this process. Well, maybe, 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 and then all of a sudden you're out of, out of your zone. And that's... You just don't want to go there. Some, I mean, yeah. and at times in my life, I think I've not wanted to go there. And that is the price. It's a lot of things I want to do with my life. But it turns out there's a devotion that is required now for the song, yeah. for songwriting and for the band. There's only one thing that I need to do, and that is to make music, because if I don't do that, mm. I'm in trouble. And I don't want to make music with anybody else other than, than Edge and Adam or Larry. If I can have that, I want that. But it requires a kind of a, a pledge, you know? It's like, it's like, a, it's like, for, like your teenagers again. It's like, you're, are you going to go there? This is some people might say, you know what? I can't do that. And that would be totally understandable. It might even be mature. It might even be sane is to say, if you think that I can commit to this, like we did when we were kids, you're off your, you're out of your mind. That's what it requires for me. Is there any risk of anybody saying that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, if you asked if you interviewed me last week, it might have been me. What, of saying they want an easy life and not, not want to go there, or? That I can't go there yeah. the way you need me to go there to be committed to the degree that you expect at this point in my life versus where I was 40 years ago. Yeah, I mean, each member of the band has their own decision to make, but I'm clear. I mean, this is what I want to do. This is what I do with all my time at the moment is work on new songs. Even though we're here to talking about Songs of Surrender, it's the new songs that get me, you know, awake at night. Songs of Surrender is only possible because there's so much amazing momentum for new work and for the future. And to be fair, we have a drummer who so, is injured and can't be playing rock and roll. And, yeah. and so, so if we take this interest in acoustic music and intimacy being the new punk rock, uh, which is, I really believe in the force of intimacy and these earbuds, and the way we listen to music now. But if intimacy is the new punk rock, so is punk rock the new punk rock. Mm. And we've got to make some really noisy rock and roll. That's what I need to hear. Mm. You know, Edge is, you know, is the most influential guitar player in 35 years. The only person who won't say that is him. The, the yeah. band has staked out extraordinary musical landscape. The subject matter has been interesting. We've got a singer that can, has an annoying gene but we need, we need a bit of bottle in our rock and roll yeah. singers, right? Actually, I've got, a, I've got an apology. Um, <laughs> I wrote it. <clears throat> I apologize for having the unreasonableness of youth as I enter my 60s. I apologize for being a singer who will get in your face. 
whatever direction you're looking. I apologize for not being shy or retiring and for loudly giving thanks for where I go to work. I apologize for stretching our band to its elastic limit. I apologize for wanting to make an unreasonable guitar record <laughs> that rattles my cage and others. I apologize for repeating over and over that rock and roll is not dead, it's just older and grumpier and occasionally makes fireworks out of its mood changes. But most of all, I apologize for apologizing. I was gonna say, if you don't apologize for the apology, no, this whole thing's <laughs> pointless. You just heard Bono apologize for what you think he has been doing for the last 40 years. What you missed was the point that he's apologizing for what he's about to do. Come on. With his band. That's the point. That's it. That's the point. That's it. I mean, it's great that we've got this thing running and do we know where we're actually going? To the future. <laughs> Oh, good. You are from the future then. I am. Is it better? Is it better? It's definitely better. Let's find out. The future is a town that's normally reserved for endings, where artists go to rest and see out their days. But this is a town where you two are planning a rebirth. You two's future is waiting for them in Las Vegas. You know, we're heading into the future, your future. When I think about SOS, I think I may have mentioned this. If I didn't, I'm going to say it now. In a way, it's the first time I feel that maybe you've been able to address these songs just with the simple purpose of the songs and not what did we do yeah. last time and what do people expect next time? And I feel like Joshua Tree and the desert and all of that was the beginning of this period of time for the band where you had to think about so many other things apart from just is it a great song man how much you wanted to wrestle it back to that north star you had things that you could lose mm -hmm. people that work for you that needed big tunes big moments big this big that it all just becomes this crazy thrash what was that time like now that you've been able to get back to the songs in the purest form thinking about the band beyond just the songs. Well, just serving the songs. That's it. Was, was the overarching idea for this collection. And to serve the song, but to serve the voice, which meant the voice was the centerpiece of every single arrangement. Yeah. And um, when in Bono, this case. In yeah. The, yeah in Not when you're in a rock band. No, of course, course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And, and, and that meant also allowing Bono to use his voice as he can, as an interpretive tool, um, in a way that maybe it wouldn't have been possible when he's, you know, part of a rock band at, in full flight. I'm amazed he wrote what he wrote, and I'm listening to these songs, and these songs were written five, yeah. 10, 15 years ago in the thrash of stadiums and success. Yeah. So what's yeah. fun is to hear things like City of Blinding Lights, which it sounds like a completely different song lyric to me because yeah. Bono's interpreting it in, in a way that he couldn't possibly have done with the, the rock version. Yeah. And not just there's other songs, the same is true for a lot of them, where you're hearing it in a different way. And that's, I think, why you went for new lyrics in, in a lot of songs, is because there was a kind of opportunity there, there was a platform to deliver lyrics that weren't, wasn't there before. I can't remember what your quote was, but there was a quote about genius in the book which I really loved. It doesn't exist. That's right. You, in, you inhabit it. You, manuf you man manifest it based on the work you put in and the vision well, that you have, right? So the work meets the vision, I think, is what you said. Uh, I'm not sure about that. I think, I think... You're not sure? I think genius exists. As a magic? No, that's what I disagree. I think it does. No. I'm not saying every potential genius gets to be one. Right. But I don't think anyone can be a genius. See, what I haven't decided, and you, what, where you seem to appear on contrasting sides of the table, you think that there is potential that is met somewhere on the journey that tips into genius. Whereas I think that there's an intangible magic in circumstance at birth that maybe sets in motion yeah, this, this path. I, I, I take the Patrick Kavanagh line that God makes all men genius but most men do not like God's work. So there's genius in everyone. Right. The idea of a genius is what I dispute. 
I don't think that there's a past you can take away take no, away from genius. Yeah, I agree with you, you can't say you fell the fuck off, you're no longer a genius. It's not can. a Michelin star. Can and must. Now why I don't would believe. you revoke the genius no. pass? There's lots of people who inhabit genius for a period and then it is gone from them. You have absolutely had genius moments, but if you want me to take the genius tag off you, happy to do it, but I kind of like to go to my grave thinking Bono and Edge and Larry and Adam in my lifetime were a genius band. I like that. Well, that's a nice thought, but I'd like to rip the band-aid off it if the next album's fucking shit. Yeah, but you <laughs> need that to fight. That's yeah. what you need in order to get to your best place creatively. As we almost reach adulthood. <laughs> Speak for yourself, like pal. <laughs> I would like to say, when somebody occupies something that's never been occupied before, a feeling, a color in the spectrum if you're a painter, a mood we've never encountered, then we're getting close to the visitation that you describe as genius. But, but most people don't own anything in terms of they're just very good at other people's stuff. So there's a lot of karaoke greatness out there, but actually to own something, it is yours. That feeling, if you're an artist, that's what, no one gives a fuck that you can paint a face or you can do a landscape like this. What we want to see is a view on that landscape we've never seen before. And that when we look away from it, it will always be with us. The thing that's the most difficult to maintain is sharpness. Sharpness is, is the edge. The thing of being able to make that decision in the studio or when you're writing a song and get to where you need to get to it. As I say, you get distracted with the almost great idea if you're not sharp. If you're sharp, you'll go, no, that's not good enough. So is it safe to say that those moments that are well documented both throughout the history of the band, most recently in Surrender, where Bono was lashing out against anyone in the room for this sort of lack of chemistry or connectivity, is self-flagellation at times over you showing up, having been in six different places trying to figure out how can I be sharp? The problem is when you're not sharp, you don't know you're not sharp. That's the, that's that's the truth. That's kind of what I'm trying to sort of say in a, in a story. That, that, that's the truth. When you're out in the world, your top line mouthy person, as I am, and you're energized by what you see as possible out in the world, and you come back into the studio and your mates are in the green room watching telly, you might be a little annoying. Like, come on, let's go out and do the songs. Right. And if Edge is in there, and he is lost in the permutations and combinations of a mix. Yeah, I'm the guy who might, I might go if I'm, if I'm working on Drop the Debt or if I'm working on Red, yeah. I might just leave them to it. But actually what they need more than anything for me is get out of the fucking green room, get into the studio, let's make our mind up on the mix. Edge, you got it here have faith in your judgment, let's go. That's my job. So coming along and going, yeah, 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 whatever you want. You stay with this for another two days and I'll go and make some phone calls. That's not gonna work. That's just me wanting an easy life. It's what I'm saying is, yeah. if I put you two's, the potential extraordinariness of a particular song as less of a priority than me having a good, an easy life, that's not a good decision. Got it if we're paying for studio time. Wow, that work ethic, eh? you just never shake it, like, from day one. I think that's the thing that people yeah. have to acknowledge, is aside from the talent, the growth, and the, and the chemistry, and, and your ability to translate experience through the arts, you just worked harder than anyone else, didn't you? Mm, Maybe. I think you're Maybe. up there. I mean, it's always been a struggle. Um, you have to remember, we're, we're kids that came out of punk rock, we weren't great musicians. What we learned along the way was that our limitations were actually a strength, but it still didn't mean that it was ever easy. And I think that's a good thing because struggle means you're always gonna have an intensity and a, you're reaching all the time beyond what you're 
comfortable with and capable of. Yeah. But it, it took it. It took hard work. It took determination. It took doggedness to, to make the first album, the second album, every album. So why would our next one be any different? Because I thought maybe life would catch up with the band at some point and decisions would be made that reflected that moment in time. But it doesn't sound like well, that's happened. I thought about it, but when we were doing these songs, there was something happening with my voice that I'd never experienced before. And there was a level of, of kind of control and subtlety and I was, something was going off every second day. And so I'm like, what's, what's this? And people were feeling it and so I'm going, he wants it, I want it. Have we got the wellspring of talent? No, not talent. Talent's the wrong word. Why are you so hard have we, so have we, Oh, no, 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 it's not talent. I hold that, please. Have we the wellspring of extraordinariness? Right. Maybe energy. And the energy to dive into it. And I thought, we might. So let's give it a, let's see. Let's go to the next level then. But to go to the next level, it takes a completely different strategy. Speaking for myself, it means this is it. I have to do this. And, and I'm going to have to do another things that I very much enjoy doing. I will set aside in a delightful way because the thing I most delight in is when that song arrives. And that's it. Outside of my family, outside of my friends. And they know you too well to know any different, right? They understand that's who you are. Right, so this is it. But it's it's a, it's exciting moment. It's like if you two gets back on track and we have the firepower out of our fucking way, we can really, we, you know, we can, we can go there. Well, I don't know if I've ever talked to anybody who in a 90 second span of conversation can go from like, do we have the talent? No. no. To get out of our fucking way. It's so amazing. No, no, no. I, I was checking. Do we have the extraordinary? I understand. I understand. Talent, we, of course, we're talented at this stage. But, but you have one. Talent is a pain in the air. Talent's nothing. It's not, even, it's not even worth mentioning. It's so loads of talented people. Yeah, yeah. Do you have the blessing? Do you have the gifts? And if we do, then out of our way. You know, when I think about driving into Vegas, and I knew we were going to stop here on our journey, I imagine that this is sort of where the fly ended up. <laughs> you got it right. It was always the idea. But yeah. my question is, ended up doing what? This. What is to come? I think he got very good at blackjack. Right. But this is what I mean. Fat fly, sitting in a domestic suburban environment, longing for the days when he would electrocute himself on the video screen at the back of a stadium tour. You know, what happens to the eternal mischief forever captured in that brief window of time to the fucking fly? Yeah, yeah. Beautiful. This is where the fly is flying. And the, the mischief now is to bring a cathedral mm. to Las Vegas. Mm. There happens to be one, it's called Guardian Angel Cathedral, it's one Catholic cathedral. We're bringing another. It's called the Sphere, and we are going to make a cathedral right off the strip in Las Vegas. We're going to make much mischief there. We will, there will be much delight. It will be delightful. <laughs> We're going to take our live show to the next level. All we've tried to do from the beginning is break that fourth wall where you look at the camera. Well, sure. For us, the case was we would jump off stage. I would jump into the crowd, climb, you know, try to break the fourth wall. Right. Then we started doing it with technology, videos, turning them into video art, the satellite stage you know, could only exist because of ear monitors that allowed you to go in front of the speaker stack. That's how the satellite stage was invented. We invented it. And our shows have always been pushing at the sort of outer parameters, really. And this is the next level. This is how we hopefully take ourselves and our audience 
to the next level, we're choosing Actung Baby as it's the right place for such mischief because the fly was always headed to Las Vegas. Right. It's a place where people come to be entertained. This is different. This is, this is like we're going to Oz. You know, <laughs> we're on a, this is the Yellow Brick Road. Paved with faith and luck, this is Las Vegas, where something brand new sits on the horizon, waiting for you too. And part two of our conversation, coming soon.